good morning. It's great to see all of you. It's great to to that are you all that you're all here and keep in mind that God has you all here for a reason and purpose. And if you're watching, listening, He has you watching, listening for a reason and purpose as well. So I hope that all of you will be blessed and we'll get you know a word from the Lord this morning. So I've titled today's message desperate times should be an s over there but desperate times call for or desperate measures desperate time desperate measures and uh, the reason for that is because we're going to see two of our main characters in this book um going through dealing with desperate going through desperate times and we're going to be seeing what their desperate measures were now in his more mature years David heard God say to him, I will instruct you and show you the way to go with my eye on you. With my eye on you, I will give counsel. Do not, leave, do not be like a horse or a mule without understanding. You see, the horse is impulsive and rushes heedlessly into battle while the mule is stubborn and holds back. And all of us have had both experiences. The point being that God doesn't want to deal with us. God wants to deal with us as men. I'm sorry. The point is that God doesn't want us to deal with us, to deal with us as men deal with animals. He wants to be close to us and guide us with his eye. The way a parent guides his child. So when we behold the face of the Lord, we can see his smile or frown. And we can discern from his eyes which way he wants us to go. Well, in these next couple of chapters that we're going to be covering today, we're going to be seeing the experience of David when he, he was living without that kind of intimate loving guidance. And then we're also going to be seeing what Saul experienced when God had to deal with him like a horse or mule. And so what I hope this message, today's message will do is to challenge you to ask this important question. Who do you turn to in desperate times or in those moments of crisis? When it seems like the voice of God is silent and you're not or you're not getting any guidance from him. And so what we're going to be seeing here is two contrasting uh, perceptions, two, two people who did two totally different things. And so, again, this, these are the things you're going to be seeing. And I hope that, again, it challenges you to ask those kind of que that important question. Who do you turn to? In those desperate times. So before we get into 1 Samuel chapter 27, let's pray and ask the Lord to speak to us this morning. Lord God, we are so thankful that you brought us here, all of us here this morning, Lord. We're reminded that your mercies are new every day and that your glory is ever flowing lord it's just it goes on it's eternal lord it never ends lord and so now as we continue our time of worship lord i i pray that all distractions will be removed lord and that we will hear from you clearly what you have to say to us lord through your word and through this message lord lord all of us are in different places dealing with different situations are in different circumstances lord and and with this message, I know that you're going to show us, Lord, how to deal with those moments, all those, deal with those situations, Lord, those circumstances. And so I, I pray that you will, again, just minister to everyone watching, listening, everyone that's here, Lord. And that our focus, our hearts, our, will be completely on you and that our eyes will be open and our ears will be open as well, Lord. Protect all of us here, Lord, everyone from the kids to the youth to everyone here, Lord. And 
again, just keep us safe and, and fill this room with your spirit. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, 1 Samuel chapter 27. 1 Samuel chapter 27. And the word of God says, David said to himself, one of these days I'll be swept away by Saul. There is nothing better for me than to escape immediately to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me everywhere in Israel, and I'll escape from him. So David set out with 600, with 600 men and went over to Achish, son of Maoch, the king of Gath. David and his men stayed with Achish of Gath. Each man had his family with him. And David had his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. Then it was reported to Saul that David had fled to Gath. He no longer searched for him. Now David said to Achish, If I have found favor with you, let me be given a place in one of the outlying towns so I can live there. Why should your servant live in a, in a royal city with you? That day Achish gave Ziklag to him, and it still belongs to the kings of Judah today. The length of time that David, David stayed in, in the Philistine territory amounted to a year and four months. David and his men went up, to, went up and raided the Gesh, Gesherites, the Gerizites, and the Amalekites. From ancient times they had been the inhabitants of the region through Shur as far as the land of Egypt. Whenever David attacked the land, he did not leave a single person alive, either, either man or woman. But he took flocks, herds, donkeys, camels, and clothing. Then he came back to Achish who inquired, Where did you raid today? David replied, The south country of Judah, the south country of, of the Jehoramelites, or the south country of the Kenites. David did not let a man or woman live to be brought to Gath, for he said, or they will inform on us and say, this is what David did. This is what this was David's custom during this whole time he stayed in the Philistine territory. So Achish trusted David, thinking, since he has made himself repulsive to his people Israel, he will he will be my servant forever. Well we begin this morning with a story about how David's fear got the best of him and the measures he took upon himself to ensure that to ensure his and his group's safety see the pressure of constantly running from place to place one step ahead of death finally took a toll on David. In spite of the Lord's miraculous care for him, the truth is, is, is that David's faith wavered. His words in verse 1 expressed his fear of living like a hunted animal. He started looking at or thinking of his entire situation and began to lose sight of the fact who, of who he was destined to become, of the promises that God had given him. Would God appoint him king and then allow him to be killed before he could reign? Would God deliver him from the hand of Goliath only to deliver him into the hand of Saul? The answer to these questions is, of course, no. But I think all of us can agree that circumstances have a way of distorting one's outlook. Fear, uncertainty, and doubt have a way of obscuring the promises of God. As children of God, we must be careful not to yield to despondency. If you remember the stories of Moses and Elijah. Moses was discouraged over his heavy workload and wanted to die. 
and Elijah ran from the place of his duty because of fear and discouragement. Now, I'll speak more on this in a bit. But when we start to look at God through our circumstances, instead of looking at our circumstances through his eyes, we lose faith, patience, and courage. And in the, it's in those times that the enemy will triumph. It says in Proverbs chapter, five, or chapter 3, verse 5, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not, lean, and do not rely on your own understanding. And so this was the situation with David. So what does he do? Again, we're told that he takes his two wives, his 600 men and their families, and takes off. He flees to the land of the Philistines. And there he contacts Achish, the king of Gath, and humbly and respectfully asked for a place he and everyone with him could settle at. Now when Saul had learned that David had left and had fled to Gath, it was at that time, in that moment, that he no longer searched for him. Again, he, he thought, David was under the impression that things were cool after the last time they had that, that encounter that we covered last week, where for the second time he had spared Saul's death and Saul asked for forgiveness but apparently he knew that you know David I guess understood he he thought that uh, he was still going to come after him well yeah uh, he left and Saul no longer went looking for him and so he left him alone it's been a long time it had been a long time and since chapter actually 21 that uh, he was last there in Gath. But that was early in the troubles and his troubles with Saul. And in that chapter, in chapter 21, there it tells us that he barely escaped with his life. By this time, though, everyone was aware, everyone knew that Saul wanted to kill David, and that Saul, that David was Saul's, was Saul's mortal enemy. And as a fugitive now, Achish figured that he'd be useful in his ongoing struggle with Israel, now that he believed they had a common enemy. An enemy of my enemy is my friend, so they say. So the heathen king of Gath showed hospitality. And he agreed to have them stay near. He gave David and all his people the city of Ziklag to settle in. And there his him, David and his entire entourage stayed for 16 months. And during that time, David made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerizites and the Amalekites. These people, just to let you know, were heathen inhabitants of Canaan, whose destruction had been ordered by God all the way back from Exodus. In fact, he ordered the destruction in Exodus chapter 17, Joshua chapter 13, and once prior in 1 Samuel chapter 15. However, when H.H. inquired, where did you raid today? David reported his attacks were against his own tribe, Judah, or Jeremiel, or the Kenites. And so, through this deception, through this, um, uh, through this, he, the king of Gath, trusted David believing that David was alienating himself. He was moving further and further away from his own people out of loyalty to the Philistines, that he was essentially becoming a traitor. Now, 
what this shows us that even in exile, David was fighting the Lord's battles. But here's where his conflicting views, his views conflicted with one another. See, even though he trusted in the Lord to preserve him for victory over Israel's enemies, he couldn't trust him to protect him from Saul. And why is that? Because his despair had caused him to see more value in doing the things he did for God than the the things God was doing for him. Now, this is also something that we must also try to avoid in our own lives as believers. And this can be so easy to forget, especially if we've been serving the Lord for a very long time. Always keep in mind that you, all of you, are just as valuable to God as the mission he's called you to. Let me remind you what it says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. It says this, God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So in other words, ladies and gentlemen, God sent his son to die on the cross because he loves you, each and every one of you, and sees the value and potential in you. And the more you understand this, the more you comprehend this, the more this becomes becomes overwhelming uh, to you, it overwhelms you, the more significant the mission he's called you to will become for you. And when that mission is complete, his intended purpose for you will also be accomplished. But it's his love that will make you want to keep going, to live longer, to not stop, to to just go on and on and continue to accomplish his will and purpose for your life and to move forward to the next assignment he has for you. Again, if that's his will and purpose for you, a lot of times we may say, okay, you know, I'm, I'm done with, with this particular mission that he's calling me to. And we forget that he may call you to do something else. Paul put it like this in Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 through 26. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, if I live on in the flesh... This means fruitful work for me, and I don't know which, of the, which one I should choose. I am torn between the two. I long to depart to be with Christ, which is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue to be with you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that your boasting in in Christ Jesus may abound. So yes, even Paul, he understood this principle. He understood this because of the closeness, because he knew, was aware of God's love for him. Yeah, it was far better to be with the Lord, to be with our loved ones. To, to you know, I, I, I again, I. Think about that image I just saw of my mom and my grandmother. Yeah, it's a lot better, be a lot better for me to depart and be with them and to say, hey, my work here is done. But you know what? He says that uh, although he's torn between the two, it's far better. Well, I mean, it's, it's necessary for him to 
to be alive, to keep going for their sake, for the sake of his readers, for the sake of the Philippians, but for us as well, for those of us reading this, and to continue with all of you for your progress and joy. Again, let me finish that last verse, so that your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound. That's the kind of heart you ought to have when it comes to serving, when it comes to whatever it is you're doing for the Lord. It's just to keep going. And when he's done with that particular mission, it's just to keep going to the next one that he has in store for you. So regardless of how of what it is that he's called you to or how long it takes, do it with his great love for you in mind. David later understood this when he wrote the words found in Psalm 138, verse 8. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Lord, your faithful love endures forever. Well, now that he's gone to be with the enemy, David now has to negotiate his way through tricky circumstances without the obvious assurance of God's guidance. He must now move on faith, remembering past times of God's faithfulness. As such, this chapter, this text here also illustrates ways in, we, in which we as believers are often forced to make important decisions without the benefit of a specific word from God. The Old Testament is full of examples of characters who made decisions and take actions on their own, but who trusted in God through it all to guide them through their steps, to guide them, to guide their steps. And a good example of this is of, of Joseph. A good example of this is, is Joseph, who we read about in Genesis chapter 37 through 50. Even in the New Testament, rarely do we see saints have direct confirmation of their actions, though they hold resolutely, without a shadow of a doubt, to the belief that God is involved in everything that they're doing. So, you see, we have a bunch of examples in, throughout the entire Bible that remind us to submit our entire decision-making. Everything that we do, again, our decision-making process to God and to trust Him to enlighten our God-given reason and logic and to guide us in our important decisions in life. You see, here's the thing. Generally, all of us, we all negotiate our way through life's circumstances, through life's issues, problems, and our perception of them is what often guides us in the decision-making process. But as believers, as children of God, as Christians, we understand there's a bigger picture that's yet to be revealed. Our faith is what helps us to discern God's guidance in and through every problem, issue, or obstacle, including the current circumstances that you may be facing right now. We therefore understand that He can and we're not surprised when he actually does intervene to change the circumstances or alter our decisions. You may be thinking you're going to be moving one way, 
But as you pray about it, as you think about it, as you read God's word, you begin to see, you know what? The Lord's guiding me to go in this direction instead. And with the wisdom he gives you, it's, it's there where he guides you to make the right decision. He may, again, not speak audibly to you. He doesn't speak audibly to a lot of people. But whatever it is that he calls you to and guides you in, again, there's a good reason and a good purpose behind it. So you have to trust in him. Trust in him with all your heart. Continue in that faith. Continue to know that he has your best interest in mind. And that he, although he may seem silent and quiet at times, he's there watching you. He has his eye on you. And like I said in the beginning, the more you know him, the more and you will understand, you will be able to see him and he will guide you with his eye. And you'll know whether what you're doing is something he approves of or disapproves of. Again, in the end, when you obey and listen, he gets the glory and he gets the honor. It's not you, it's him. Well, here again, we, in this chapter, we see David's decision-making process. What he did in his desperate time, the measures he took during his desperate times. And again, this chapter was primarily about David. Now, in the chapter we're going to cover next, that we're going to read about, we're going to now read about, it's basically going to be about Saul and how he reached a new low in his kingship. So let us go there now and pick up there in chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 28. At that time, the Philistines gathered, gathered their military units into one army to fight against Israel. So Achish said to David, you know, of course, that you and your men must march out in the army with me. David replied to Achish, good, you will find out what your servant can do. So Achish said to David, very well, I will appoint you as my permanent bodyguard. By this time, Samuel had died. All Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his city, and Saul had removed all the mediums and spiritists from the land. The Philistines gathered and camped at Shunem. So Saul gathered all Israel, and they camped at Gilboa. When Saul saw that Philistine camped, uh, the Philistine camp, he was afraid, and his, and his heart pounded. He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him in dreams or by the Urim or by or by the prophets. Saul then said to his servants, find me a woman who is a medium so I can go and consult her. His servants replied, there is a woman at Endor who is a medium. Saul disguised himself by putting on different clothes and set out with two of his men. They came to the woman at night, and Saul said, Consult a spirit for me. Bring up for me the one I tell you. But the woman said to him, You surely know what Saul has done, how he's cut off the mediums and spiritists from the land. Why are you, why are you setting a trap for me to get, to get me killed? Then Saul swore to her by the Lord, As surely as the Lord lives, no punishment will come to you from this. Who is it that you want me to bring up for you? The woman asked. Bring up Samuel for me, he answered. When the woman saw that, when, when the woman saw Samuel, she screamed. And then she asked Saul, Why did you deceive me? You are Saul. But the king said to her, Don't be afraid. What do you see? I see a spirit form coming up from out of the earth, the woman answered. Then Saul asked her, what does he look like? An old man coming up 
she replied. He's wearing a robe. Then Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he knelt low with his face to the ground and paid homage. Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up, Samuel asked Saul. I'm in serious trouble, replied Saul. The Philistines are fighting against me, and God has turned away from me. He doesn't answer me anymore, either through the prophets or in dreams. So I've called on you to tell me what I should do. Samuel answered, Since the Lord has turned away from you and has become your enemy, why are you asking me? The Lord has done exactly what he said through me. The Lord has torn the kingship out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. You did not obey the Lord and did not carry out his burning angry against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this to you today. The Lord will also hand Israel over to the Philistines along with you. Tomorrow, you and your sons will be with me. And the Lord will hand Israel's army over to the Philistines. Immediately, Saul fell flat on the ground. He was terrified by Samuel's words and was also weak because he had not eaten anything all day and all night. The woman came over to Saul and saw that he was terrified and said to him, Look, your servant has obeyed you. I took my life in my hands and did what you told me to do. Now please listen to your servant. Let, some, let me set some food for you in front of you. Eat it and it will give you strength so you can go on your way. He refused saying, I won't eat. But when his servants and the woman urged him, he listened to them. He got up off the ground and sat on the bed. The woman had a fattened calf at her house and she quickly slaughtered it. She also took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread and some tortillas for him. Just kidding. She served it to Saul and his servants and they ate. Afterward, they got up and left that night. Um, as I was going through this chapter again, I couldn't help but to notice how much of a child Saul seemed. His whininess and sitting up on the bed, not wanting to eat, throwing a fit. It's interesting. Well, we learn right away here that a day came when the Philistines decided to make another massive assault against Israel. Now, it wasn't clear whether they were encouraged to do so because of Saul and his nation's political instability. Maybe they saw something there that, okay, this is a good time to strike, or because now they had David on their side. And he had, it appeared that he had shifted his allegiance. But in that moment, they felt that there was no better time than now and to, and, and to strike Israel. And so as a result, David now found himself in a difficult and compromising position. So he was informed by the king, by King Achich, to demonstrate his loyalty to him, to his new Lord, by fighting against his own people. And so David's response was like, okay, well, you'll see what we have. Meanwhile, Saul also found himself in a desperate situation. Samuel was dead, and the Philistines were camped at Shunem, and they're, they're in the valley of Jezreel. Verse 5 tells us that Saul, who had his army camped at Gilboa, when he saw the Philistine camp, became afraid, and his heart pounded. He realized that this was a bigger problem that he can handle. This was a crisis. And he needed some serious help 
with how to handle this entire situation. It was bigger than anything that he had ever had to face. Now, some time after Samuel had died, rather than executing the Lord's mandated death penalty on all mediums, Saul had them expelled from the land. Now, mediums were those who communicated with dead, with dead and spiritists or soothsayers were those who contacted the spirits. And again, just to be clear, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, the Lord had condemned these people and strictly forbade his people from engaging in such occult practices. And this also applies to us as well. Again, you have the freedom to choose whatever you, whatever it is that you want to do, but we must avoid these kind of people, the tarot card readers, the palm readers, those who say they, they can bring up the dead. Um, yeah, and that's not what the Lord wants for us. When we do these things, we're depending on other people, we're depending on objects, we're depending on idols to tell us the future, tell us the things that we need to hear when in all honesty, we need to be hearing from the Lord. He's the one who knows everything. He's the one who was there, who was there from the beginning and will be there all the way to the end. He knows what's best for you. Always and keep in mind these spirits, these people, these things they conjure up. Um, the devil is a liar. His minions are liars. And all they're going to want to do is distort the truth, distort reality. Distort the plan that God has for you. So avoid these kind of people in your lives as well. Don't listen to them. Come to the Lord with all your issues and problems. So, as Saul prepared to go out to battle against the Philistines. We see that he tried in various ways to inquire of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him. So with nowhere else to turn and in desperate need of what to what he should do, Saul did what he knew he shouldn't have done. He resorted to a celebrated medium at nearby Endor, who had somehow survived the purge. Disguising himself, Saul made his way at night there to Endor and found this woman, this medium, When Saul asked the woman to bring up Samuel, the unexpected happened. She actually saw Samuel. See, mediums and spiritists were not actually consulting the dead. Their work was, demon was a demonic sham, and they knew it. This strange incident here has always been controversial. And several different approaches have been used to understand the passage. Here are, the four, here are four of the most commonly suggested possibilities. Some believe that it was a, hallucina the hallucin uh, a hallucination of the medium. But this doesn't make sense because it doesn't explain why the medium was also frightened. It doesn't explain why Saul also saw Samuel and why Samuel spoke to Saul not the medium. Some believe, some believe that uh, this was a, de a deception from the medium, but this also doesn't, isn't an adequate explanation for the same reasons that I just gave. Some believe that this was a demonic impersonation 
of Samuel. It's possible that the medium with her occultic powers summoned a demonic spirit that deceived both her and Saul. But this suggestion is also inadequate because it doesn't speak to the issue of motive. After all, what advantage does Satan gain by Samuel's words to Saul? Some have said that it's that it's possible for Samuel to reappear in some way, coming from the world beyond back to this world. That uh, some have said that it was impossible for Samuel to reappear from another world to this world. But Moses and Elijah also came from the world beyond and back to this back to this world when they appeared with Jesus. At the transfiguration there in Matthew chapter 17 so let me tell you this I agree with those who say that this was a special occasion this was a special circumstance in which God himself allowed Samuel to actually appear this is the best explanation because it is supported by the reaction of the medium who got more than what she bargained for. It's also supported by the truth of what Samuel himself said. He spoke the truth, and we know that that's not what the, the evil spirits do. That's not what the devil does. Adam Clark, a commentator, makes an additional valuable point. I believe that the woman of Endor had no power over Samuel and that no incantation can avail over any departed saint of God, nor indeed over any human disembodied spirit, or in other words, a spirit that has left someone's body. It's because of this, and you know, again, I could spend a lot of time here. Uh, for many other reasons that I believe that Samuel really did come, but not because the medium called for him, but because God had a special purpose for it. And we'll see now what that was. As already mentioned, when she saw Samuel, she screamed, again indicating that she was not anticipating it. Additionally, we also make this point that this medium probably only had only been familiar with the presence of demonic spirits. But now this was the first time that she witnessed the presence of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit. Thus, the presence of the Holy Spirit may have seemed terrifying to her. Another commentator said this, the indications are that this was an extraordinary event for her and a frightening one because she was not in control. While realizing this, realizing who it was, the woman understood that she had been deceived and, the, and that the inquirer was Saul himself. The woman then described to Saul what she saw and Saul knew Yes, it was Samuel. But what was Samuel's first words? What did he say to Saul? Not, hi, how you doing? I missed you. Missing the party. Having a great time here. No. He said, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Now Saul rationalized his, his actions to Samuel four ways. First, he was greatly distressed. Two, the Philistines were fighting against him. Three, God had departed from him. And four, God would not answer him. Sounds to me like they were, he, all he was doing was whining. You know, I'm sad, I'm upset. Philistines are up against me. God's not with me. And God's not answering me. Crying child. 
But rather than comforting him and telling him, it's okay, it's all right, buddy. No, Samuel didn't have any good news for him this time around. He rebuked Saul for his impiety and informed him of what he had already told him. What he had already told him the first time when he was alive. That the kingdom was torn out of his hands and would be given to David. Had he just listened and believed Samuel when he said these words to him, again, this would have been avoided. He wouldn't have been, you would have not have gone to Endor and contacted this woman, but he didn't believe. Ultimately, who he didn't believe was God. Because God was speaking through Samuel to speak these words the first time. And so now again, he's speaking the same words to him in a more powerful way. Just as the Lord had rejected him as king because of his sin in the Amalekite fair of, in, in chapter 15. So he would deliver him to the Philistines and bring about the death of him and his sons. Well, this story then ends by telling us that after reluctantly accepting refreshment to be refreshed and given food to be strengthened, um, and again, he, the only reason he was because of the butchered calf and the freshly baked bread without yeast. Um, after accepting that, Saul arose and dejectedly walked off into the night. My mind, I know they didn't have pockets, but I imagine him just walking down that road to Ender with his hands in his pocket sad and weeping and just kicking rocks. Man, I messed up. Man, I messed up. And I think one of the one of the things that also may have bothered him a lot too was knowing that Israel was going to be handed over to the enemy. Now, we've seen so far during the darkest days of David's exile when Saul had turned all his energies to the sole task of going after him and killing him, David sought help wherever he could find it. David turned first to Samuel while he was alive at his hometown in Ramah in uh, chapter 19. When it became obvious to the prophets at Ramah, when it became obvious the prophets at Ramah could not protect David indefinitely, he fled back to Gibeah to seek the help and advice of his good friend, Jonathan, in chapter 20. Finally convinced he could not secure reconciliation with Saul and being in need of arms and shelter, David went to Ahimelech, the priest at Nob in chapter 21. In his greatest hour of need, David returned to the sources of his childhood faith and reminded and was reminded that Yahweh had always been his help. Well, this chapter now obviously tells us a lot about Saul by relating or by telling us where he turned in his darkest hour. Saul's nighttime trip to Ender marks his final depa departure from faith in God, from the faith that Samuel had stood for in his life. Now, in death, as in life, Samuel proclaims once again the judgment of the Lord against Saul. This episode, along with the report of Saul's ignoble, ignoble death at Mount Gilboa that we'll be reading about in, when we get to chapter 31 will mark the final events in the fall of the king. 
This here shows us, these two chapters show us that during any severe crisis, during any difficult circumstance, it will heighten the sense of what one really believes. During World War II, combat soldiers in Belgium on Christmas Day were involved in the Battle of the Bulge, one of the most brutal and gruesome battles in the history of the United States Army. Even though there was no general ceasefire, the troops spoke of an urge to go to church, which resulted in a few strange services in which civilians sat with soldiers in full combat fatigues and weapons. There was a sergeant in the 83rd Infantry Division on the northwest flank of the Bulge who was under intense artillery fire when several of his men or his squad lost their lives. Well, he testified to an overwhelming sense of God's presence, which drove him back to his own childhood faith. And it resulted in, in him recommitting his life to the Lord that lasted the rest of his life. If you all are familiar with the term foxhole prayer, and if you're not, basically it's giving your life to the Lord in that moment when you feel like in battle, when you're in that foxhole and you don't know whether you're gonna make it, it's that last prayer of, of handing you over and submitting to the Lord. Well, it's often viewed, that foxhole prayer is often viewed as a commitment tossed heavenward in desperation and that it seldom lasts. It's only temporary. But let me tell you this, I've read many stories in books, biographies of veterans, not just in World War II, but other wars as well, of veterans convinced that their own life crisis, their own crisis was life-changing, while other men in the same situation never gave God a thought. So you see, crisis has a, has a way of bringing to the surface what one really believes. Saul's trip to Endor showed the king's real commitments and it revealed uh, that his failure to nurture his relationship with God during his lifetime, it, it meant that he was unprepared for his life to end. He wasn't ready at all. As Christians, we must attend to that most important of all, we must attend to that most important uh, of all relationships so that in our own moment of crisis, which believe me, it's going to be inevitable if you haven't yet experienced the moment of crisis, it is inevitable. It's not a matter of if, but when you can face God with all confidence and hope. So let me ask you, all of you again, this important question which I wanted you to think about from the beginning. In a moment of crisis, in a moment of desperation, in, in that moment where you just, seems like the world is around you is crashing down who do you turn to what do you believe about god what do you believe about jesus where does your faith stand are you looking for other places and other answers and and are you looking for advice from other people or are you turning to the lord 
Are you turning to him to guide you? To comfort you, to fill you with his love. And if at this moment, at this very moment, you are facing a moment of crisis, where are you looking for hope and confidence? Well, if you don't know the Lord, if you haven't yet surrendered to your life to God, you're not going to find it anywhere else. You're not going to, you may find some relief, but you will never find that true comfort that you're searching for, that you really want in that time. He alone will guide you, will speak to you again, will will give you what it is that you need to get you through that time, to get you through that storm that's happening in your life. And he will get you through it and past it. And he will be there during sunny days, during the days that the skies are clear and it's beautiful. And he will also be there in that next moment of crisis. He will never leave you or abandon you. Remember again that you're valuable and precious to him. He sent his son to die on the cross for your sins, to give you everlasting life so that your sins may be forgiven and that death will no longer reign over you. Spiritual death, that is. Yeah, this body will die. But when the moment you have placed your faith in God, that moment you accept Jesus Christ into your heart, you become born again. And now your spirit will be with the Lord for all of eternity. And later on, and you know, again, you will be resurrected with all the other saints and new bodies, new resurrected bodies, bodies similar to that of Jesus. I can just only imagine what that day will be. But those are the promises. Those are the promises that you need to hold on to. The promises, especially in the moment of crisis, that the promises that he will never leave you or abandon you. And that he has a purpose for you. Hold on to that. But if that's what you want, if that's what you're looking for, if you've never had that before, I want to invite you to the cross. I want to invite you to the cross and surrender your life to Jesus and, and hand your sins over to him so that the slate will be wiped clean and that all your sins will be forgiven. So if that's you, wherever you're at, where if you're watching, listening, I want you to just stop what you're doing. And I want you just to, to bow your head and close your eyes. And if you're able to, yes, get down on your knees or even on your face before the cross of Christ and pray this prayer. Repeat this prayer. Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner and I ask for your forgiveness. I believe you died for my sins and that you rose from the dead. So now I repent of all my sins and confess you as my personal Lord and Savior. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for forgiving me. So now I ask you to fill me with the Holy Spirit so that he may help guide me during this difficult time, during this crisis in my life. So that he may also guide me in my new born again life. In your name. Amen. If you prayed that, me be the first one to tell you to welcome to the family of God and then 
you are now a child of God and angels are rejoicing in heaven right now because the sinner has turned away and has become born again. So let us know. Reach out to us. We want to hear from you. We want to hear your story. We want to maybe help guide you in your next steps uh, in your faith. And uh, we want to see what we can do for you. So um, definitely get a hold of us. Uh, Turn to him in those moments of crisis. He's there. He cares for you. He loves you. He will never leave you. Thank you for watching. I pray you've been blessed. Goodbye and farewell and God bless.